Hello and welcome to Power Play for this Friday, January 27th. I'm Joyce Napier. Tonight, getting back to house business. Everything feels broken. Oh, I just offended Justin Trudeau. The liberal vision for the future could not be more different than Mr. Polyev's version. Conservative leader Pierre Poilievre and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau gather their caucuses in Ottawa. What can we expect from the House return on Monday? MPs are standing by. Then, Russian war games? Why did a Russian warship sail into the Western Atlantic? Is it a provocation? We bring in the former head of Canada's Navy to break it down for us. Plus, convoy anniversary. Our Friday Day strategy session on responding to political anger one year after the so-called Freedom Convoy rolled into Ottawa. But first... Let me tell you something, Justin. There is pain in the faces you do not see. There is suffering in the voices you do not hear. And there is distress and even chaos in the places you do not go. Let's continue to fight for families. Let's continue to fight for patients and healthcare workers. Let's continue to fight for facts and science and truth. Let's continue to fight for people who still feel left behind. My friends, let's continue doing this work for Canadians. The parliamentary break is over and MPs return to the House of Commons on Monday. But what are they returning to? Recession warnings, Canadians feeling the burn of cost of living crisis and a health care crisis as well, pretty much everywhere across the country. Will the usual question period bickering cut it this year? Or is collaboration the name of the game in 2023? Well, let's ask the MPs. Joining me now are Mike Gerritsen. He's the House Leader's Parliamentary Secretary, Conservative Caucus Party Liaison Eric Duncan, and NDP Caucus Chair Jenny Kwan. Hello to the three of you. Thanks for being there. And to you too, Jenny, far away. Um, let me start with you, Mark, because, you know, hey, let me tell you something, Justin. Is there a style here that I'm calling him Justin? Is it? What is that? See, well, I, I can say from our end is uh, from the conservative angle today, Pierre was calling out Justin Trudeau's failed record after eight years, Joyce. The prime minister wants to run away from his record. He wants to try to blame everybody else for the many crises and problems you talked about, from inflation to public safety and a wide variety of frustrations that Canadian ha uh, Canadians have. So Pierre, in his speech to caucus today and to the country, is making it clear, we are not going to let Justin Trudeau and the Liberals, after eight years, get away with their failed record. They are going to own it, and we're going to make sure that Canadians know that when it comes to inflation, grocery prices, housing, there is a federal responsibility and a federal fault here with the Liberals. When it comes to public safety, Joyce, we are seeing increasing violence, a crime wave happening in our cities, 32% increase in violent crime, 92% in gang violence and homicides. There are direct correlations. The federal government, Justin Trudeau, the Liberal Party, eight years, that is their record. When it comes to the criminal code, those are things their decisions have resulted in. So Pierre uh, today called out the Prime Minister directly to say, we are not going to let you off on this. Instead, we're going to talk about collaboration or calling out. We are going to be providing a contrast to say the approach that the Liberals and NDP are having it's not working. We need a different path. Okay. Sorry, you're not Mark. You're Mark. <laughs> okay. Let me correct that. Sorry about that. Um, 
So respond to that, because well, I, you know what, there is anger out there and, and a lot of things are broken. Um, I think that we can, you know, say this wherever we sit in the political spectrum. So how do you respond to that, that kind of rhetoric? And clearly the lines are drawn here. That's the kind of tone we're going to hear in Parliament. I respond to it by saying, look no further than your intro piece. It's about how we respond to the anxiety and fears that quite happening, uh, quite honestly are happening throughout the globe right now. Do we respond through it through a way that Mr. Polyev is doing by exploiting people's fears and anxieties? Or do we work with Canadians to give them the supports that they need? And I would argue that even in your intro piece, if you look at that, the contrast between the two leaders is could not be clearer. Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, wants to work with Canadians wants to provide the hope and supports that people need right now. That's what we were focused on in the fall session. That's what we delivered. And that's what we will continue doing. So, I mean, we can take one of two paths. We can exploit people's fears for political gain, as Mr. Polyev is doing, or we can look for solutions to support Canadians through the challenging times that they're having right now. Jenny Kwan, I want to ask you, are you expecting a sort of more aggressive session? Because the rhetoric is, is kind of strident. Are you expecting this to pour into the the work the House of Commons has to ha, Commons has to do, and it's a lot of work you guys have to do. Well, there is a lot of work. There's no question. The reality is this: that Canadians are struggling, and they need the government support. They need the government to focus on them and their needs. Uh, I have no doubt there will be a lot of political bickering. Uh, we already are seeing the stage being set by the Conservatives and the new leader where he wants to take things. We saw that last year in terms of the chaos that was going on in the House of Commons. But for New Democrats, this is our focus. It is about the people. That's why we are here. It's not about political advantage and it's not about promoting a political party. It is about the needs of the people and where people are at. People are faced with a tremendous impact and hardships as a result of inflation and what we call New Democrats as greedflation. The reality is big companies are actually receiving uh, and, and, and making record profits, but yet both of us and the Conservatives would not touch a uh, profiteering tax, which is what they should do. We have a housing crisis. We just had a report to talk about how vacancies are basically at zero. There's hardly any vacancy out there. And the rent is so exorbitant. It is so expensive. So we need, we have a affordability crisis in housing that we need to address. We have a healthcare crisis. And now for us, the Democrats, yes. we want to focus on delivering on with the agreement, what the liberal said they would do. And then the next phase so of this parliament, it is about dental care for seniors, for people with disability, for people 19 and under. It's about delivering on for Indigenous, by Indigenous, uh, urban, rural and northern yeah. housing. It's about delivering the needs of the community. So, and we've got to keep yes. a focus so on that. I, 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 I want to bring in Mark here because what Jody Kwan is talking about is delivering for Canadians. There is a bill at the end of that delivery. And this week, the, the message from the Bank of Canada was very clear. It is you can't be spending. So what 
are you going to do? Where are you going to cut? Because the spending has to stop or those interest rates will keep going up. I think that, you know, um, uh, yours Ms. and everybody's, by the sure, way. Sure, okay. sure. Ms. Kwan makes a, a very good point. Right now, it's it's about our primary focus has been how do we support Canadians? In particular, how do we support the most vulnerable Canadians? That's why we looked at things like topping up the GST for the most vulnerable Canadians, which economists uh, throughout the country said would have no inflationary impact. We looked at other similar measures to help the most vulnerable. Um, you know, look at something, look at our priorities, look at the first bill we'll be debating for two days. It's about codifying the uh, supports that we're working on with provinces to get childcare to $10 a day uh, in, and codifying that into uh, uh, legislation so, so that that becomes a permanent part of the Canadian structure uh, with provinces when we talk about uh, supporting uh, uh, families with young children. Uh, you know, so it's not just about spending money. It's also about how do we give the supports to Canadians that they need right yes, now. Yes, but, but I'm... Talking about the, the governor of the Bank of Canada and, and the announcement this week, I want you to listen to your leader here, and then I have a question for you. Sucker punch. That's what the Trudeau government hit Canadians with today by increasing interest rates after Trudeau and his government promised rates would stay low for long. So, Eric Duncan, does your party really think that Justin Trudeau sets the rate of the Bank of Canada? Justin Trudeau's spending over the course of the last couple of years, half no, a no, trillion no. My dollars... Question is, is, no, no, my question is specific. He was speci specifically said Justin Trudeau raised the rate. Do you think, and does your party leader and your party think, that the government sets the rate of the Bank of Canada? The government and the government spending does yes, influence the need to the, do that. Perhaps the reason the rates, have, perhaps. Joyce, are, the rates, the reason, the reason the rates are going up, Joyce, is because of that inflationary spending. The no, Bank of Canada that, has that, admitted that, that, that. Is, the half are, a trillion dollars in new spending that's come during the pandemic, the true, bill is coming due, and yes, you just acknowledge yes, that. And, so and, the, but again, also, Mark, what we didn't vote for was CRA coming out this week and saying there was 15 billion dollars in money that should be recouped, and the CRA said that we're going to walk away and not even try to claim that. There is the Arrive Can app, $54 million for an app that could have cost a quarter no, of a million dollars. No, but you're talking about There's wastage, and, and, and that's totally legitimate. That's, that's your job. My question was, does your, does your leader think that it is Justin Trudeau who sets the rate, the, the interest rate for the Bank of Canada? Because that that kind of is not exactly what happens. We all know this. But what we do know, Joyce, I go back again, that the amount of money and debt and deficit that the federal liberals have done over the course is influencing that. Mark Carney, a yes. liberal, I will take and said, domestic spending is causing our inflation here in Canada. So yes, Joyce, you're at, there is a correlation of the decisions that Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party have made over the course of the last eight years, specifically during the pandemic now, and reigning in spending and reigning in waste. There is absolutely an economic correlation to the, the struggles of inflation and the Bank of Canada's decisions because of federal Justin Trudeau's and the Liberals' spending policies. There absolutely is a correlation. The okay. Bank of Canada, but Mark he, Carney, have acknowledged it. But I think it comes back to 
the rhetoric and the choice of language. And Mr. Polyev is intentionally using language that he knows is there to exploit uh, and uh, uh, fears and anxieties, and he's doing it solely for political gain. Mr. Polyev, just like Mr. Duncan, know very well that the um, uh, prime minister does not set the interest rates. Um, you asked three times and you didn't get a clear answer to it because they know that. What they're doing is they're using the rhetoric here to exploit those fears and angers that I was talking about earlier. And that's where we need to draw the line. We need to say we need to come together as Canadians to support each other well, in these difficult times. We'll have, that's all the time we have. Um, interesting, interesting conversation about the rhetoric and we'll see what happens uh, in the next few weeks. Unfortunately, we had audio issues with Jenny Kwan, but Mark Gerritsen, Jenny Kwan, and um, Eric Duncan. Okay, I'm going to call you Mark. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for being there today. And coming up, a Russian warship in the Western Atlantic Ocean. Our alarm bells now ringing for Canada and its allies. We speak to retired Vice Admiral Mark Norman, the former head of Canada's Navy. Stay with PowerPlay. And welcome back. We are going to take you now to the Western Atlantic Ocean. Why is a Russian warship called the Admiral Gorshkov doing near Bermuda? The state-of-the-art naval vessel is equipped with a hypersonic missile, a long-range weapon that can supposedly travel more than five times the speed of sound and has a range of about 900 kilometers, if not more. Here's what a radius of approximately 900 kilometers looks like from Bermuda. And there is what a radius of about 900 kilometers looks like from Halifax, Nova Scotia. The Russian frigate, we should say, over 10,500 kilometers away from Ukraine and Russia. So let's bring in CTV News, Judy Trin. Hi, Judy. Hi, I know you. This story was very read this morning on our website. So... How did you become acquainted with this story? It's a Tom Clancy novel, right? So what is interesting is that our viewers from Atlantic Canada who, tra who track these Navy vessels using various apps were emailing us saying that uh, they noticed, first of all, uh, two Canadian frigates off the coast of Halifax and then also the presence of a Russian frigate uh, near Bermuda. So what was going on? So I did some digging. And what did you find out? Like, who's watching this, aside from those people in, in Nova Scotia, right? But NATO, um, right? Uh, NORAD? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know what? The Russians actually want us to pay attention, right? They flagged this. They put out a broadcast saying that they were going to uh, conduct a missile test, and they already did. It's a virtual simulation. What they did was they basically said that they had hit its intended target. So in the video that the Russians put out, you actually see the hatches of uh, the weapons bay open up. Now, these Zircon missiles are state-of-the-art. It is their most advanced weapon. Apparently, it can travel anywhere from uh, Mach 5, five times the speed of sound, to maybe up to Mach 9. But this is only due to Russian sources, right? This is what the Russians tell us. And it can hit 
targets about a thousand kilometers away. What is interesting is that this news came at a time when, uh, Joyce, you know that Canada and the U.S. announced that they were sending tanks uh, to uh, Ukraine to aid in the war effort. And it also comes at a time when, uh, upon the anniversary, we're just a few weeks away from when Russia first declared war. So maybe Russia flexing its muscle a little bit because they really wanted people to know about this. But anyway, great story, Judy Trin. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Now, the Russians say it's just a military drill. But is it really a provocation from Russia? Let's find out. Joining me now is retired Vice Admiral Mark Norman, the former commander of the Royal Canadian Navy and a fellow of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Mark Norman, welcome to Power Play. Great to have you in the studio. Great to see you, Joyce. Thank um, you. So the Admiral Gorshkov frigate uh, is in the Western Atlantic. So what is it doing there so far from home and so far from Ukraine? Well, it's a great question. So I think if I can, let's talk about the ship for a second and then we'll talk about what it may or may not be doing and why this is really of interest. The Gorshkov is about a 10-year-old frigate. Frigate is a relatively modest uh, type of vessel. Canada's Navy is made up mostly of frigates, so they're roughly the same size, about 450 feet long, about four to 5,000 tons. Nothing impressive in and of itself. And as I said, it's a relatively new ship for the Russian fleet, and it's about 10 years old. Probably the most significant aspect of this particular ship is that it carries a new state-of-the-art missile system called the Zircon missile, which is a very capable hypersonic uh, missile that's designed to destroy other ships and potentially attack land targets at ranges upwards of a thousand kilometers. The exact range, we're not really sure. That's the ship. And so what? Well, it's very curious. The ship is based in the northern fleet of Russia in Murmansk. It's reportedly on its way to do some joint exercises yeah. with the Chinese Navy and the South and African the South Navy. Africans, yeah. And we can come back to that. Um, one would not typically drive from Murmansk to South Africa via the Western Atlantic. Because so where are they? Near Bermuda? Well, so. that's the last report. And, yeah. of course, they're not reporting their position anymore. <laughs> so we don't really... I'm sure, I'm sure the uh, military folks know exactly where she is, but we in the public domain don't know where she is. So this is clearly um, a uh, stunt, uh, a political demonstration. Um, now, who are they trying to impress? Well, I think they're trying to do two things, is my guess. One is they're trying to demonstrate uh, what they've been saying all along, the rhetoric out of Moscow, that uh, you know the actions of the West as it relates to what's going on in Ukraine are uh, provocative from a Russian perspective and that there will be repercussions. And so this is a, uh, a signal, as modest as it is, that uh, the Russian military is modern, it's capable, and that they can reach out anywhere that they want to go, including into the Western Atlantic, which is traditionally the stronghold of the United States and, and its allies. <clears throat> but nobody is particularly how can I say, either impressed or worried about this? No. I, NATO, NORAD, the Americans. Exactly. They're watching it very carefully because it is of interest. Um, but I think the secondary audience is a domestic audience in, uh, in Russia. And I think this is, uh, this is a mechanism by which 
um, the, the Kremlin and the Russian military can demonstrate to its own population that it has a vibrant modern military and that they're not going to be pushed around by the West and the United States. Um, the fact that uh, the Russians have communicated publicly in a press release the fact that they're exercising uh, simulated missile launches is humorous to me as a, as a former naval officer. We do this kind of thing all the time, and we don't send out press releases. So, you know, I think this just speaks to the fact that this, this, is, this is all about messaging. Yeah. Flexing muscles exactly. or, or whatever. Exactly. Saber well, rattle. So, so he's, you know, trying to show his capability. I want to bring you to Canadian uh, capability here. Uh, you know, Canada has announced this week four Leopard 2 tanks, uh, German-made, uh, Canadian-bought. They're going to send them to uh, Ukraine. Is that, is that big, four tanks? Sadly, no. Um, it's, I think, given the state of the armed forces, it's a Herculean effort. And the people who were involved in preparing those uh, four tanks and ultimately getting them into theater are going to be working their backsides off to make this happen. And a lot of work's already gone into it. But I think it's a, uh, a very disturbing reflection of the state of Canada's armed forces that of a fleet of over 80 uh, tanks, we can uh, basically generate and, uh, and deploy 5% uh, of, of what we're supposed to be able to do. So how much could Canada send? I mean, is this, this is the most that we can do. Uh, that speaks to our to Canada's uh, military capability uh, at a time when the the prime minister is saying yes we're going to help Ukraine yes we will help them militarily are we even capable of helping Ukraine militarily I, I think this is this is uh, part of the sad uh, side of the story uh, much of the assistance that Canada is providing to Ukraine and has done so to date is what I would call third party assistance so Canada is helping by buying uh, things by paying others to deliver things, um, but the, the ability to actually go into our own uh, toolbox, into our own uh, inventory, and find things that are of use is extremely limited, and that's a function of decades of underinvestment, and I would go as far as to say neglect of the armed forces, and and that's where we have ended up, where there's not much we can do, so we have to go elsewhere to provide. Um, armored vehicles, for example, that have to be bought off the shelf. But we have the uh, defense minister saying, yes, now we're, we're going to start spending money. If you look at the state of what we have today, how long would it take to bring our capability back to what it was, say, when we were in Afghanistan? Well, I, I mean, it would be hard for me to give you an exact timeline, but we're talking years, and I'm talking probably five-plus years. Um, arguably, it's taken us decades to get into this situation. Uh, it didn't happen overnight, and it would take us, I think, um, as long to, to dig ourselves out of the situation that we find ourselves in today. And in the meantime, we'll continue to watch that frigate yeah. and see where it's going. Right. Exactly. Thank you. Mark Norman, thanks so much. That's great, Joyce. Thank you very much. Our Friday strategy session is standing by, but first, the political headlines you need to know today. The list is next. Stay with PowerPlay.
And welcome back to Power Play. This is the list what's happening in politics today. Another mandatory minimum sentence struck down as unconstitutional. The Supreme Court today ruling on the mandatory minimum sentence for recklessly discharging a firearm. The judgment comes after an Alberta man argued the four-year sentence he received for discharging his firearm violated the Constitution on cruel and unusual punishment. An increased police presence on Toronto public transit today following a surge in violence. Eighty officers have been added to patrol subways, streetcars and buses following a recent wave of violence. The union representing transit workers says violence has reached crisis levels and wants to see a national transit safety task force. And footage has been released on a brutal attack of the husband of former U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Paul Pelosi, as well as his 911 call. This gentleman just uh, came into the house, uh, and he wants to wait here for my wife to come home. He told me to put the phone down and uh, just do what he said. Okay. The body cam footage shows Paul Pelosi struggling to get a hammer away from the suspect before the attack. The video was released today after a coalition of news agencies fought for access to the evidence. And coming up, the weekend marks the one-year anniversary of the convoy protests in Ottawa. A year later, how has the convoy changed Canadian politics? Our Friday strategy session will dig in next. Stay with PowerPlay. I think the significance is that the convoy probably never should have had to happen, but people are frustrated in this country and they have every reason to be. And welcome back. This weekend marks the one-year anniversary of the so-called Freedom Convoy protests in Ottawa. In anticipation, Ottawa police say they will be implementing a zero-tolerance approach to noise, open-air fires and more this weekend. So what is the legacy of the convoy protest? Did it leave a lasting impact on Canada and on Canadian politics? Let's take this to our panel of strategists. Greg McEachern from Proof Strategies Leans Liberal. Larissa Waller from GT and Company. She previously served as the head of communications for Ontario Premier Doug Ford. She leans conservative. And Anne McGrath is the NDP National Director I'm not going to say where you lean, okay, not this time. Uh, welcome to the three of you. Very nice to have you. Um, Larissa, you know, I'm going to start with you. One year after the convoy, we likely won't see the kind of event that it was a year ago, but the anger is still there. It is palpable and, 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 and in a lot of ways probably justified. Has it, however, become a political tool for Mr. Poiliev? I don't think it's a political tool necessarily for Mr. Polyev. I think Mr. Polyev is listening to people who feel that they have not been listened to by the government. And I think that the convoy itself escalated to the point it did because a lot of Canadians felt they weren't being listened to. Um, I think this prime minister doesn't necessarily want to or know how to diffuse a situation. I think he probably had a lot of opportunities where he could have. Um, but he doesn't, he, you know, it didn't benefit him politically or he dug in on principle. Um, sometimes it takes sort of a bigger man or bigger person 
to put principle aside and really focus on a practical solution or how do we defuse this. Um, I think a lot of people are still very angry. They're not angry necessarily about COVID anymore. Now it's translated into other things, cost of living, crime, um, you know, there's, there's a grocery list of things, groceries, it's a grocery list of things to be mad about right now. And I think that that anger has translated to other parts of our lives. Um, Rick, I want to ask you, they were, were they, look, let's look back at a year ago. Was this government unprepared for this? Was it, did it come as a surprise? Um, Which government? The, the, because the Trudeau government. Yeah, no, but, but the responsibility for that street is the city of Ottawa. It's two, you know, two blocks to the north of us. And what's changed, and as you said in your opener, we have the, the police chief didn't last the occupation. We have a new police chief. We don't have a mayor, the same mayor anymore. Um, he didn't run again, but his successor, his first two big appointments, were seen, senior appointments, worked for the former mayor. That's not gone over well in, in Ottawa. Um, you talk about gatekeepers. There's gatekeepers on Wellington Street now. They're cement, and they, the street's been closed for a year. And the city right now is still wrestling what they're going to do with that, whether or not they're going to reopen to it. So I think the report will tell, perhaps tell us, you know, how much intelligence did the federal government have? We, we hashed a lot of this out last fall. You know, different agencies, you know, had different, um, you know, feelings on whether or not they should have seen it coming. I think that the, the, the danger is what Larissa just talked about, where they're not angry about this anymore because they can't do anything about that, so they're going to move their anger to something else. Anger is like fire, and if you play with it, you can lose control of it. And I think you know, we have to be really careful about um, you know, the, the way that extremism is allowed to come into the political rhetoric. Uh, you know, Pierre Polliver stood with these folks, brought them coffee, and I noticed when we hit the fall and we had the inquiry, conservatives less and less were vocal about that this. That was the Emergencies Act. The Emergencies Act, Act inquiry. Yeah. Um, conservatives were not using anything from that. I think they're embarrassed. You talk to conservative MPs from Ontario, they don't really want to be involved in this. Doug Ford didn't do anything about this. I think there's a big feeling from a lot of conservatives that they just want this to go away. Well, I mean, you know, Doug Ford is not targeted by the anger, he's not going to say, hey, how about me, you know, get angry with Funny me. Funny about that. You know, well, look, you know, uh, that's a political survival. Um, but I want to ask you, Anne, because, you know, everybody talks about lessons learned. I, I, I don't know if, if, if anybody, any politician learned lesson, but this, does this leave or change the way we're doing politics now? The tone has certainly changed. Uh, Justin Trudeau, you know, some, some people actually out there, there is hatred out there. I was uh, at, the, at the cabinet retreat. I was covering it in Hamilton, and, 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 and they followed him there, the protesters, and, and, and it's, it's, it's quite uh, graphic what they tell him. Is Jagmeet Singh targeted by the same anger? So uh, the question of whether or not it's uh, political, of course it's political. Um, uh, but, you know, and it remains to be seen what's going to happen this weekend. I, I don't know what's going to happen. But I do know that a year ago, a relatively small group of protesters in the grand scheme of things who, who were highly resourced and, and very disorganized uh, and ha who had incoherent demands um, were able to hold uh, this city hostage and, and able to do things that the Coots border crossing, at Windsor, et cetera, et cetera, because it was a failure at every single level of government. You know, Greg talked about the police and the, and the city and, 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 you know, talk about Doug Ford and, and, and whether or not what his role was in all that. And we said, well, he wasn't there. He's the premier of the province. 
and he wasn't there. So it, it's like at every level there was this uh, complete failure to grasp what was going on. And they were able to hold, uh, you know, hold citizens across the country uh, hostage and all of that. So I don't know if, if there have been any lessons learned at the level of the police. I've heard very encouraging things about, you know, zero tolerance and they're going to really make sure this yeah. doesn't happen again. But I heard that almost every single day during the three weeks that the blockade was on. That was not zero tolerance at all. It right? absolutely it was like wasn't. Five tolerance. I mean, we were we were assure, reassured every day that it was being dealt with, that it was going to stop, that they were going to do something about it, they were going to put more police down, all of those things. And nothing happened until the Emergencies Act was in vote. So, you know, we'll see what happens with the uh, inquiry into the Emergencies Act, but the truth is that it, it stopped when the Emergencies Act was invoked. So I don't know what's going to yeah. happen this weekend. So, Larissa, they come this weekend. Should uh, Conservative MPs or even Mr. Poilievre um, show his support as he did last year? Is, is, or, or is this a thing of last year and this year we will not see Mr. Poilievre with the protesters if they do indeed come to Ottawa? No, I think I think that I, w I would hope that the the Ottawa police are ready. Um, I hope that they're well resourced and, and well positioned. I think that when we look at the convoy and the lessons learned, we have to think about how did what propelled them to get there, and then what failures happened, as Anne said, at every level of government to allow them to stay, to allow them to position themselves where they were. I think if we only focus on the second part, the security of the people in Ottawa, and and that is a massive massive thing to talk about and to protect ourselves from in the future we cannot allow that to happen but we also have to figure out how to talk about the anger that propelled them there and i think that you know conservative mps aren't going to forget that first part and i think that the the prime minister would be well positioned to think about how do i talk to these people listen to people who are really hurting instead of mocking them or instead of digging his heels in the anger that propels them there is often pushed by misinformation and disinformation. And when you see conservative MPs, you know, you at the, at the start of today's show, you pressed a conservative MP a couple of times about whether or not the government sets the rate for the Bank of Canada. Which it doesn't. And yet they're repeating that. And again, that's, you know, a bit, you know, minor and off field of what we're talking about. But those people showed up here in Ottawa and they believed things that Justin Trudeau was responsible for that he didn't do. And when you see conservative MPs and supporters and commenters and uh, columnists, um, pro you know, propelling those, that anger has a false base, but it's incredibly dangerous. Your right to protest and free speech should not impact the health and physical safety of, of people, whether it's here or in Coots or wherever it was in Canada. Is it controllable and this anger? Is it something that politicians can do something about? Well, I, I think if they want to, they can. I, I think that it. I think that vaccines, for instance, were one of the issues that, that they were that they were upset about. Vaccines, I believe, probably were used as a wedge during the election campaign. So, uh, you know, I, I think that there, if there is a will to actually do something about this, it is possible. Because, as I said, this it is a minority. Uh, it's a fairly small group of people in many ways. Um, the and protesters, yes, but the anger, I'm sure, is more than what the protesters are showing. It, 
the frustration anyway. I there. totally agree with that. I think that there is a lot of anger out there. And, and I think it is around things like the cost of living. Groceries uh, are big. I think housing is big. Um, there's lots of concern about the, the kind of dilly-dallying and finger-pointing and jurisdictional games that are being played around the health care. Uh, you know, while we watch the health care system disintegrate in many ways, uh, you know, there's a lot, there is anger. And, and, and the pandemic has changed a lot of things. Uh, we were very isolated during the pandemic. There's a lot of, you know, social, uh, and it exposed a lot of the really deep chasms uh, of inequality in our country. And so there's a lot to deal with for sure. But I believe that, you know, we have to look at things that can bring us together. And I think that investments in health care, protecting our public health care system, I believe that dealing with the cost of living and the people that are most suffering right now to try and find ways to alleviate that. I, I think there are things that can be done. Well, that's uh, a long list. Uh, the House comes back on Monday. I'm sure we'll be talking about this again. Greg McEachern, Larissa Waller, Anne McGrath, thank you for being here. Thank you. And still to come, VIA executives were grilled by MPs about last year's holiday travel chaos, while CN declined a committee invitation to share their side of rail fiasco. The press gallery digs into this and more with their plays and misplays of the week. Stay right here. And welcome back. The MPs are preparing to return to the House of Commons next week. And this weekend marks one year since the Freedom Convoy first rolled into the nation's capital. So what were the plays and misplays this week in politics? Let's bring in the press gallery. Joining me now are CTV News senior digital parliamentary reporter Rachel Ayello. She pens the Capital Dispatch newsletter. Good to read. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Toronto Star columnist Susan Delacourt, also good to read. <laughs> and our special guest is Greg Weston from Searchlight Strategy Group. Uh, hello, welcome, welcome. But you know, you all have misplays, you grumpy people. Um, <laughs> it's I'm January. Start, it's January, <laughs> it's cold, <laughs> and, um, and it won't stop snowing, but that's not so bad. <laughs> Greg, what is your misplay? My misplay this week uh, just happened, or it was just discovered. I don't, it didn't just happen, but it was just discovered that the Green Party, the poor, hapless Green Party, um, that just can't seem to get out of its own way, uh, now has posted um, tens of thousands of names, addresses, phone numbers, uh, birth dates of supporters and prospective voters online, open for everybody uh, to see. And the thing about this, Joyce, is, you know, the best you could say about it is it, it, it was um, an accident but this is the second time it's happened. Exactly the same thing happened in 2019. And, and, and I and think we have a clip. Yes, let's listen of, to of Elizabeth, Elizabeth May. May in 2019 yeah. saying this is not going to happen again. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Go for it. The new efforts to collect more data about us for things that are quite innocent and helpful. That's all fine. But the impact for our democracy of the misuse of this information is profound. And we will lose our chance to get hold of it if we just hang back. You can't fix that, right? Can you, Greg? I mean, it's out there. No, it's out there. And I should say, Joyce, that in that same speech um, of the things on that day that Elizabeth May is probably now regretting that she said um, was another quote, which was, it will be a sad state of affairs if a fridge is smarter than we are. 
Um, so there may so be some they, people out there <laughs> thinking maybe am, the I'm day not, has I'm not arrived. Going there. I'm not going there. Um, so Susan, she, she actually, Elizabeth May called for better personal data protection, um, and, and, and she's back at the helm of the party. Uh, does she need to take action here? What, what can you do about this? So I can't resist. It is the Green Party, so maybe this is a recycling. Right? This is just, you know, why have a new scandal when you can reuse an old one and bring back a leader of previously used one? So, um, yeah, that's probably it's not. The green not... Party <laughs> yes, it's, um, I, no, this is, this is a, Elizabeth May has been a serious voice on this and it is a serious problem. Um, but it becomes less serious when you commit the same mistake twice. Has it sparked a greater conversation beyond the Green Party? Well, to me, it just is a reminder that federal parties are still not subject to federal privacy laws. The Liberal government brought in rules saying they have to post their privacy um, policies online, uh, but if any breach happens, like the Privacy Commissioner has no jurisdiction to be able to act. Uh, it was deja vu for me as well. I covered the story in 2019 when they first did this. It was very similar, a Google Drive giving personal information yeah. away. Recycling. And so it's just kind of, yeah, <laughs> how do you... <laughs> it's recycling. Uh, I, hopefully they've learned their lesson now. We're not back in a couple of years talking about this all over again. You have also a misplay. I do. So I'm giving my misplay this week to the city of Ottawa for deciding to, or at least making the first step towards reopening Wellington, but doing this without a plan. Basically what we're hearing from city council, including the new mayor, is that they're hoping the federal government comes to the table and works on some sort of modernization. And to me, I was just thinking this week, the, la the last time the city of Ottawa was asking the federal government for help on Wellington Street, it was about a year ago, uh, and that didn't go so well. Uh, so I just think it's a really missed opportunity. There's an important conversation to have about what's happening with that street. Uh, but to open it up in March without a plan and hoping that they'll figure it out as they go, I just think is a total miss. So, well, like it's a year and we've got cones and, and cement blocks blocking the, the street. What's going on? Like, like who's not doing his or her job? I don't understand why this is still like that now. You know, it. It's kind of as though we, we are really turning a, a, a corner here, Joyce. You know, in the, in the States, they're used to this thing, as you know. I mean, there's, there's yeah. you can't go... Um, can't drive drive, can't, in front can't, of the White House. Can't no. drive up on the, onto the lawn of the White House. Yeah. Have, yeah. yeah. So um, this is, is kind of the debate. And then you get the city involved. And like everything in this city, uh, something's owned by the city and something's owned by the... National Capital Commission, then the federal government, then the provinces over here, and nothing gets done. Yeah. And uh, the city is worried about traffic. Um, and um, the feds, I think, quite understandably, after what happened, uh, is worried about uh, the, safety, yeah. the, the safety of our, our parliamentary precinct. Uh, Susan, you have a misplay. Yeah, and it's kind of a bookend to my misplay of two weeks ago um, when I, I gave the airline executives um, a misplay for not showing up in Ottawa. This week, it was CN Rail. Um, if there is, a, it's just a, a tiny rule, but if there is a Commons Committee hearing on how hard it is to travel in Canada, you should not prove that by not traveling to Ottawa. And CN, I, I read the statements. I was a little baffled. They share rail with VIA. There, there were many, many references. They were conspicuous by their absence at this week's hearings. And I don't think their explanation for why they weren't here was good enough, unless, of course, a tree fell on the tracks and they just couldn't make it. What's your take on that? 
So I am going to give them the benefit of the doubt in saying that they do plan to come to committee. They're working on making that happen, and so we'll see when that happens. Uh, but I think the other part of this we have to be mindful of is all of these, the airlines, the rails, are really doing a fairly good job of trying to put all of the blame for this on the federal government. And not to say that they're not responsible, but I do think that there's a consecutively now between the airlines and what we've heard from Via Rail, a uh, failure to take full responsibility for their role in this. And, and I think that that's probably only going to be a pattern that continues as these hearings go on. I don't know. The travel chaos in Canada, I could just rant about it for hours, so I won't. <laughs> I'm just going to ask you a question. Why, um, why f first of all, YCN didn't show up, although they said, as you said, they had a written statement. They will eventually. Um, are they not taking it seriously? Not only CN, I'm specifically the airlines and CN as well. Um, travelers don't matter in Canada. What, what is going on? It's, it's very simple strategy, and that is, this is not our issue. How do how do the airlines explain the mess that has been out there the for weather. for the past year? Um, why do they want to show up in front of the cameras and and have to explain that? They get as far away from it as they possibly could. Via rail, CN. How do you explain in this day and age why you have a fast-moving train that's going by that has a tree growing close enough to fall over on top of the train? What if it fell across the tracks just before the train got there? It would be a massive disaster. 22 hours in the train and nobody can come and get them? It's not as though we were, you know, in uh, uh, somewhere around uh, Hudson Bay. This was between Toronto and Montreal, 22 hours sitting on a train. I mean, if you're an executive, do you want to be anywhere near that? No. So they just chickened out. They stayed home. Maybe it's because they didn't want to take the train? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> they didn't want to take a plane either. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, Rachel, when you see this, the, this committee, um, you know, because that's what we're talking about, the parliamentary committee, is anything going to change after this committee? <laughs> <laughs> what an existential question, Joyce. I feel like I ask myself this after every committee study. Um, optimistically, yes. Uh, however, pessimistically, and after years of covering Parliament Hill, what we'll get is a report that um, some of the MPs agree on, not all of them. They make recommendations. It takes a while for anything to really be implemented. Maybe in this case, the minister is saying he's going to update the Passenger Bill of Rights, so that might be a tangible uh, improvement. Uh, but I think like all parliamentary committees, there's a bit of actually trying to get work done and a bit of showmanship as well. So we'll have to see how well, that I'll, washes out. The, the advantage is at least you get to hear what they have to say and the explanations, uh, you know, which puts, puts it up there. I mean, it doesn't change anything really, but at least it puts it up there. But anyway, interesting misplay. Maybe next week you'll have plays. You'll be happier. <laughs> Rachel Ayala, Susan Delacourt, Greg Weston, have a great weekend. Thank you for being there. And wait a minute. And that's your Power Play Week in politics. Thank you for spending your time with us. We'll be back right here on Monday, and now we're going to hand you over to our colleague, Angie Seth, in Toronto. Uh, we're in the